Masters in Business is brought to you by ExxonMobil. Energy lives here. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. So this week on Masters in Business, you guys make fun of me for saying this every week, but I have a very special guest, Ken Fisher. God, we barely scratched the surface of this. I really... Really wish we had another two hours to keep talking. Ken Fisher, founder and chairman of Fisher Investments. They run $68 billion as an RIA. By by some measures, they're the biggest RIA in the country. Absolutely fascinating guy. Really, really intriguing. Uh, we barely touched the surface of his process for looking at stocks, thinking about investors, looking at the universe, how he runs uh, a giant practice Really, just just amazing, amazing stuff. And after we finished uh, our our interview, he actually had a, to go to another interview. Uh, I think he was on Pim Fox's show. But we were sitting in the green room chatting. We spoke for another forty five minutes. It literally could have been uh, a, another episode of Masters Masters in Business. It was that. <clears throat> it was that. It was that fascinating. He was really intriguing. I don't think a lot of people in the industry uh, appreciate what he's built, and I don't think a lot of people outside of the financial services industry really know who he is. He's a fascinating guy. The, the, the digression we have during the podcast portion about Redwood Forest, and, and uh, you really just have to hear it. Uh I can't wait for the next time he's in New York because I have another list of questions that'll keep us busy for another 90 minutes at least. Uh, just an intriguing, fascinating uh, discussion. So without any further ado, my conversation with Ken Fisher. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on Masters in Business, I have a very special guest. His name is Ken Fisher, and he runs Fisher Investments, managing over $68 billion. He's the second largest RIA in America. Uh, if, I don't know if I'd buy that. Um, financial Engines at $100 billion is the first. I don't know who's between you two, but well, I think you guys are number you two. If you do anything other than AUM, we're way bigger than Financial Engines. I'm just doing AUM. Our revenues AUM. are bigger. we got more employees. We operate in more places. We do more things. We think of them as they're half our size. They, <laughs> well, just, we'll, have, they just have more low beep rate AUM. That, that's for sure. We'll get to that. Um, in case you don't know who Ken Fisher is, he is the third longest running columnist for Forbes and, and soon to be the all-time longest running columnist, the longest active, continually published columnist for Forbes. He was ranked in the top 25 most influential figures in the financial industry by Investment Advisor Magazine, author of 10 books, four of them New York Times bestseller, uh, number 211 on the 2014 Forbes 400 list. Ken Fisher, welcome to Bloomberg. Thank you for having me. You know, that, that, that 211 on the Forbes 400 is like you know, I still can't get above median ever in anything. That's a good list to be median on. If you're if you're stuck at 200 on the Forbes 400, 
There are worse lists to be. Uh... But, you know, I've spent my <laughs> life adoring uh, wealthy people and trying to help them. And the fact of the matter is, wealthy people need more help. And they have more, more money and more problems. There's a, there's a huge world of people trying to help poor people, and not enough people trying to help wealthy people. So, so let's get into some of the stuff. I want to talk a little bit about your background and how you found your way towards helping wealthy people. Your dad was a legendary investor. His name was Philip. Fisher, uh, you briefly worked with him. What was it like working with uh, a father who was a legendary investor? You know, my father was a very weird person, and <laughs> you have to really understand it. It's fairly simple. My father, in a world before it was known as such, had Asperger's. Mm-hmm. And so he was all of the standard things that Asperger's were. He and I got along pretty well. I was the youngest kid in the family, and so I watched him with my elders, and I just thought of him as him. But the fact is he wasn't an easy person to be with because of the things that people with Asperger's normally are and have. And on the other hand, he was brilliant and he had a quality that, because he, he taught the graduate he taught the graduate investment course at the Stanford Business School for a while. He's one of the only three people that have ever done that. And uh, he had this quality that I would hear from his students where he had an ability for people to see themselves through things that he interacted with them on and I people would say to me gee your father told me blah 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 and I'd say no my father didn't tell you that my father never thought that in his whole wide life but he had an ability to get people to see it mm-hmm. in themselves and pull it out of themselves and he did that with me and he did that with lots of people and and Philip Fisher wrote the classic book common stocks uncommon profits yes I assume you've read it I have read it I've when, read it numbers of times and, and you've also wrote uh, on the most recent edition wrote the uh, introduction to it I did write the introduction to it, and the first time that I read it, I was about 10, and I didn't understand any of it. 10 years old, you're reading a book on Well, it was my dad's book, so I felt like I had to read it, but I didn't mm-hmm. understand it. You know, it's like my dad's book, so I got to read it, right? I don't understand it, but, you know. Not exactly, when, Doctor. When I, most of my life, I've done things I didn't understand. <laughs> well, we'll get to some of that. Um, speaking of your dad, you obviously inherited your father's writing skills. Not true. Not true. Why do you say that? Uh, because if I inherited them, they would have come to me naturally. I worked very hard to learn how to write. Well, you inherited a certain range of writing skills, and you worked your way up. No, no, range. no, no. I was a I was a lousy writer really? until I hired somebody to teach me how to write. When was that? And if you say Tuesday, I'm going to Thir- get no, very no, upset. no, 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 no. I was thirty-two. Okay, so. Before most of your books were written, before, before any of my books, were before written. most of your columns were written, right? So before I, any of my columns were written, I believe your your genetics are clay, and you could mold that clay in different directions. So clearly, having a dad who is a skillful and articulate and insightful writer, there's a worse set of genes to start oh, with. Oh no, 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 no! My father was great, and I, I, uh, my, my father had marvelous qualities my father was the very best among other things bedtime storyteller ever Mm -hmm. this man told the most marvelous stories every night when it was time to go to bed and what i didn't realize he was doing when he was telling me these stories most of which he made up himself Mm -hmm. was he was telling me who i he wanted me to be when i grew up so there were parables oh yeah no the guy he was he was he was he was marvelous but uh you know i got parts of me that are my father and then there's parts Mm -hmm. of me that are just me and again I've no problem with my father in any regard, but we're all ourselves and we have to make up for our deficiencies and we have to play on our strengths. And, you know, he had his, I have mine. And that's just the way life is. So let's let's talk about some of those strengths and we'll talk about 
your writing, how important is writing to your entire process of thinking about markets, thinking about stocks? How significant is that regular monthly column and, and everything else you write? Well, you know, I think I read from some guy named Ritholtz or something that, <laughs> uh, you know, it helps you clarify your thinking when you write. I've stolen and, that from Daniel Borston, Librarian of Congress. I write to figure out what I think. That's That's where I took that from. And the fact of the matter is, that I'm not as prolific as you are, mm-hmm. but the writing forces me to think about what is it that I want a million people to be able to read mm-hmm. that they will be able to come back and shove back at me three years later if they want. Mm-hmm. And uh, Forbes has been a perfect podium for that. Mm-hmm. Writing books is good for that as well because you really have to s- commit yourself and say, this is what I'm ready to have you come back and attack me for. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My guest this week is Ken Fisher. He is the founder and chief investment officer of Fisher Investments, a $68 billion asset management uh, shop out in the Pacific Northwest. And you you basically are national, correct? You have offices pretty much all over? We're global. uh, Global. We operate uh, about $4 billion in high net worth in Europe, Mm -hmm. and we do institutional uh, uh, across the world. We have clients in six continents. Half of our 2,000 employees are in Camas, Washington, just mm-hmm. uh, 20 minutes from the Portland, Oregon airport. And then there's about 500 in California, and then the rest are scattered around, 300, wow. 350 in Europe. So I want to give you a quote because uh, of yours that I really like, and, and I want to have you discuss it. When you give up control, you give up quality control, and that is deadly in the financial services business. Explain what that means. Well, you know, most of our realm of endeavor, I don't really like the word industry for what goes on in finance, Okay, uh, is a world where the people in markets like to have free reign. Mm-hmm. And when you let people have free reign to do whatever the dickens they want, and you have a lot of them, some of them will get you in trouble. Mm-hmm. And a little bit of trouble in the world of intangibles sinks you. Mm-hmm. The fact of the matter is integrity is everything and you only get integrity through control and not letting the blow-ups occur that happen. You get a lot of great people that are great and that's all fine and they deserve free uh, reign, but you can't really give people free reign. You need to build around people that don't want so much free reign because if you have 2,000 employees and you give 1,500 of them free reign, there's going to be a hundred of them that at some point in time will be the ones that will cause you to have the SEC on your back, mm-hmm. this on your back, that on your back. And at that point in time, in intangibles, it kills you. Hmm. Fascinating. Control is about quality control, which is about in a world of dealing with the public, in a world that's regulated and intangible. We're not selling Coca-Cola. Mm-hmm. In, in a world of what's a service business where integrity ends up being crucial to your outcome, the greatest investors in the world have bad years, and bad years are just normal. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about having control of the process while you're having the bad year so that you actually are delivering what you say you're delivering and that there's no lack of control that goes haywire because once that happens, you know, in my life I've seen so many firms that went bankrupt. So there's a huge difference between having a bad year and having a bad process that can run amok and allow certain people or processes or vendors or employees to damage your own reputation. The, the reality in this business is you need 
control so that you deliver consistently with what you promised you would deliver, which is not a return number. It's a here's what we do. Here's how we do it. Here's what we're going to be trying to do for you. Here's where our bets are going to be. If they screw up, they screw up, but they are what they are. So it's about a process and sticking to that process, not promising an outcome. And also not letting a whole bunch of employees go do whatever they want to do. In the realm of endeavor that is investing, Mm -hmm. too many people think of it like it's a doctor's office rather so that you let the doctor go do whatever he wants. Now, the doctor actually operates under a set of processes he's required to by law mm-hmm. uh, and and has a Hippocratic? Uh, Hippocratic oath. But the fact of the matter is uh, it's not a doctor's office in our realm of endeavor. You can't let these people do whatever they want to do. You need to build a machine that delivers something that's consistent with what you promise the customers you do. So let's talk about that machine and the team you put together. So how did you start finding people to help you build this machine? Well, I was incompetent and I didn't know anything and I was young. So all I could do was hire people who were younger than I who had never done anything. Mm -hmm. And because older people don't want to work for me. And so I hired kids out of college and I've hired kids out of college forever. And then in the world that I came from a long, long time ago, kids would come out of college and then they would go to work for some company like Dow Chemical or IBM. And then they, if they were successful, they'd go through a 10-year training program and they'd become a career mm-hmm. Dow Chemical person or IBM person or something like that. And that world blew apart uh, when I was a young man. And they weren't doing that anymore. And instead, people were looking for MBAs and then they They'd hire the MBA. I mean, when I graduated from college, you know, we, we, we create more MBAs every year now than were created in all of history before I graduated from college. Mm-hmm. And uh, nowadays, I want to hire an MBA, you know, and then two years later, the MBA changes jobs, and two years later, they change jobs again, and two years later, they change, and they think that's what they're supposed to do, and there's no particular loyalty between the firm and the employee and vice versa. What I wanted to do when I saw the, that blowing up, the, the old model blowing apart, mm-hmm is I wanted to hire kids, train them, keep them forever, and have them never leave. So if you look at our firm, most of the people, all, pretty much all the people at the top of the firm never worked anywhere else. Hmm. Uh, I get them out of school, half of them turn over in the first year. Uh, if they succeed and stay, they might be here, they might be higher up, they might be higher up, but all of the top people in the firm, uh, with a very couple of exceptions, have been with the firm all their lives, all their adult careers. Wow. And and, and they they're kind of have the firm built into them. So let's talk a little bit about portfolios. That, that is, they have very little education. They've got no training. They've got no background. They've got no experience, except they've been with the firm for, forever. So you've educated them, you've given them experience, and you've trained them so they and, know the Ken Fisher way. Except I didn't know anything either, so we kind of had to learn it together. Sometimes it's uh, that's the only way you can you can do things. You you created the sort of firm that didn't necessarily exist. What what did you have as a comparison when you first started? How many years ago? It's thirty years, right? Yeah, I've been at this a long time. Uh, and uh, so, you know, what was I'm, the model for you to to think about when you were building this? Uh, on the one hand, uh, Intel, and on the other hand, Charles Schwab. Huh. Uh, what I wanted. So technology on one side and discount uh, brokerage on the other. Was and, in, the- and in both cases, doing things that people otherwise hadn't done yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, my father, my father had a great line that always stuck in my head. Uh, it was just one of his most marvelous lines, which is, "What are you doing? Your competitors aren't doing yet." 
implying that you do it and they're going to follow. They'll catch up. Maybe. Maybe they'll catch up. Maybe they won't, but they're not doing it yet and you're leading. And that concept as a phrase is one that I've just kind of had in my head forever. And, and you know, if you look at somebody like Intel, they always believed they had to be moving steps ahead. If you look at somebody like Schwab in the early days, they're doing things nobody's ever done before. Mm -hmm. uh, and they did successive waves of that under, Char under Chuck Schwab personally. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, I'm talking about the Intel of old and the Charles Schwab sure. of old. And uh, so if th those, those are the two firms in my mind, neither one of which are conventional Wall Street firms. That's fascinating. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My guest this week is Ken Fisher. He is the founder and chairman of Fisher Investments. He is one of the longest running columnists uh, at the Forbes magazine. He is uh, well known and well regarded within the financial industry and, and is also in the back half of the Forbes 400 list. Uh, we were talking previously about uh, writing and, and how it's impacted uh, uh, the thinking process. I want to talk a little bit about some of your books, but probably my favorite book of yours is The Only Three Questions That Count. Let, let's talk about that and talk about how did you develop those three questions? What led you to, to that holy trinity? Well, fundamentally... After a long lifetime of uh, kind of messing up on things, I kind of introspectively tried to learn about what I screw up on and what I don't screw up on and, and learn from it and get better over time. And uh, so one of the fundamental questions in our world is there's so much conventional wisdom that ends up not working in marketplaces because markets discount all uh, widely known information and conventional wisdom by definition is widely known information mm -hmm. and therefore priced that uh, a simple question like what do you believe that's actually false is such an obvious one to think of and yet it took me forever in my life to get to the point where I realized that I had to be thinking all the time about what do I believe is false uh, and then the next part in the futuristic sense is what can I fathom that other people aren't fathoming which allows me to then be ahead of the pack. Let, let's talk about both of those because they're sort of two sides of the, of the same coin. What do I what do I know? What can I fathom that other people haven't is really a way of saying, what can I see that the crowd hasn't picked up on? Right. I want to get ahead of the crowd. Right. But the first question is really fascinating, which is, which one of my fundamental beliefs is actually false? How can an investor- If I only have one, I'm doing really good. Or, or, or which one of the many? But how, the question I wanted to ask is, how can an investor, through their own introspection- figure out how many of their beliefs are false. Nor, you know, the old famous uh, Galbraith quote is when, when presented between a choice of changing their mind or, or I'm, I'm messing up the full quote, everybody gets busy on the proof, is that people would rather spend a lot of time and effort dancing around the fact that they're wrong and looking for ways to rationalize those bad choices, thoughts, decisions. How can an individual... Man, that was a mouthful. How can an individual identify thoughts of their own that are incorrect? Yeah, so look, 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 A, there's multiple ways, but let me just go with the easiest. Mm -hmm. The first is, of course, identifying what do you believe? 
Mm-hmm. If, if you can't do that, you're in real trouble and you probably shouldn't be in markets at all. Secondarily- if, By the way, that's a key point and I think a lot of people gloss over that. If you don't really understand what you believe, the markets are expensive absolutely, place to find absolutely. out. Absolutely, absolutely. No, no, no. It, it, uh, you know, the age old saying is if you don't know who you are, the markets are an expensive place to find out. Right. And the fact of the matter is that once you say, okay, I believe this, now you kind of list those things and then you say, and this is a really simple one, it's really one that people have a hard time with, is there a history that associates with that thing? And can I run correlation coefficients to see if it's actually true or not? Because if it's true, it will have a high and positive correlation coefficient. If there's no correlation there, it's not true. And so, you know, not everything can you run a correlation coefficient for, but a lot of things you can, particularly X causes Y functions mm-hmm. where there's data. And so wherever you do that, you look for, here's the things I believe, here's the things where there's history and data, let me run the correlation coefficient, see if it's actually true, and if it's not true, let me stop believing it. So you want investors to actually use numbers and think about what's true and what's not true. Yeah, it's really simple. That That's gonna take a lot of uh, a lot of easy money out of the market if people actually think about, I can't tell you how often I hear people or read people saying stuff that I have a familiarity with, and I'm, wait, that's not true. And not only is that correct, but additionally, in my 40 plus years in this realm of endeavor, uh, I've seen, particularly in the last 15, that it is more true than ever that people have these ideas, hold these ideas, and never ever stop to say, and I'll give you an example of one in a minute, never ever stop to say, I wonder if history could be a guide here where I would use data to check myself to see if this is even possibly Mm -hmm. true. Not to say that there can't be firsts ever, and there Mm -hmm. can, but you remember John Templeton's famous line that the four most dangerous words in the English language are different. different. Yeah, exactly. And the fact of the matter is you take something like all of the fear about an initial interest rate hike. Mm Mm-hmm. But gee, not logical question would be, uh, gee, has there ever been an initial interest rate hike before <laughs> in a cycle? Uh, can I find those times? Can I count them? And then can I measure on a one week, one month, three months, one year, and five year basis what's happened to the market after that? Mm-hmm. And the answer is A, you can. And B, if any of your listeners do that, they're going to be startled to find out that the market outcome doesn't have anything to do with any of the discussion that goes on right now in the public. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My guest today is Ken Fisher. He is a money manager, author, and raconteur. Uh, And we were discussing previously uh, the only three questions that count, a book he wrote. God, that's got to be about a decade ago. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Um, Almost. Let's talk, but you're known, your, your reputation is that of a stock picker. Not too long ago, Forbes published an accounting of all your stock picks, uh, as made in your columns, and over the previous decade and a half, they found that on average, the stock p- picks had beaten the S&P 500, and you had beaten the index 11 of the previous 14 years. That's a heck of a great, great run. So let's talk a little bit about, about stock selection. Um, what's the first thing you look at when you're picking stocks? I don't look at stocks. You don't look at stocks. Uh, I mean, eventually you got to own stocks, but uh, looking at stocks is kind of the last thing I do. So where do you start? Where do you begin the process? People don't understand this about me uh, because they always are looking for what they want to see. But in reality, I'm a very simple top-down macro manager. Mm -hmm. And I've 
long, 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 not always, but long, long, long been a top-down macro manager. Mm -hmm. And I didn't start out that way, but I evolved to become that uh, a long time ago. And so the first thing that I look at is the whole world, Mm -hmm. countries, sectors, subsectors, and I figure out where I want to be because one of the things that I've come to believe heavily is that it's the kind of stocks that are moving that are more important than the specific ones. You want to be fishing in the right ponds, not the wrong ponds. If you're fishing in a pond that doesn't have the right kind of fish and it's the wrong time, you're not going to get fish. Mm -hmm. And so my first thing I look at is countries, then sectors, uh, then I break that down. I uh, look at factors then, which would be big, small growth value. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's times for each of them. Uh, people tend to be a value guy or a growth guy or a big stock guy or a small stock guy. Mm-hmm. I'm not in any of those things. I'm a, let me figure out what kind of stock should be working. Where is the value that will be perceived in a few years? And where does it fit into the cycle? And then that gets me down to a very small universe of stocks to pick from. It's so the picking is, is the last thing I do. So this is very much along the lines of what can I fathom that others can't or, or the, haven't the, yet. The actual picking for me is much more simple than most people would think because I've weeded out everything but the kinds that I want. And then even if I pick the wrong ones out of the kind, if I pick the kinds right, I'm ahead of the game. Makes makes a lot of sense. You you if you don't get the best house in a good neighborhood, you get the second best or third best. It doesn't matter. It's still a good neighborhood. Location, location, location. Nope. In that regard, and this is a kind of a parallel analogy. So if you're not starting by looking at individual stocks, when you're looking at different regions and different sectors, what drives that selection process? So you know, uh, this is not to. Uh, take anything away from the perception of Warren Buffett's business interests. Mm -hmm. But one of the things I don't think that people think of him as is he's just one of the best wordsmiths ever. Mm -hmm. I mean, he just creates, you know, it's one thing you write, I write. It's one thing to write things that people like to read. It's another thing to write short phrases that people quote over and over and over again and like to. Mm -hmm. And that's all, I mean, you got to be Yogi Berra to do that successfully. And the fact of the matter is that uh, one of his great lines is the, in the long term, it's a weighing machine. In the short term, it's a voting machine. Yes. And the the weighing and the voting have to both be counted. So the weighing is about the true valuation of the quality of earnings, growth, et cetera, the correct valuation for that. And then the voting part is really a matter of analyzing sentiment and where sentiment is swinging and how you measure sentiment correctly, which is something that I don't think most people think about much. And uh, so you're looking at features that on – that break into fundamental economic drivers. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the biggest ones that I always pay attention to is shifts in the yield curve mm-hmm. globally, which most people don't think of. The, people underestimate the power of the, of the yield curve. Uh, the functioning uh, simply of where we are in the length and duration of the cycle, because different kinds of stocks perform differently at different parts of the cycle. That's part of the voting machine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then what is it that and you know, I've written a lot about this. People never really ever believe me. Professional forecasters as a group can be 
analyzed. And if you can figure out what they believe will occur, you know exactly what won't happen. Right. You don't know what will happen. But you, if you think about it like a clock, you can take about three hours of the clock out, which stacks the odds more in your favor, mm-hmm. because what they collectively believe is what has already been priced into the marketplace. Makes a lot of sense. And and since it's been priced, it can't occur. It's already been done. Mm-hmm. So now you're looking for what else there is. And so one of the things that we always do is spend a lot of time collecting professional investor sentiment about sectors, about countries, about the market as a whole, and arraying that into bell curves and knowing that 12 months out, the middle of the bell curve doesn't happen. We don't know which side of the bell curve happens. Mm-hmm. Could be the left, could be the right. We got to try to figure that out. Might be wrong, wrong a lot. I mean, I'm, I'm wrong a lot. I'm basically, you know, kind of the Forrest Gump of the world that gets there by running backwards with blindfolds on. But the fact of the matter is, Forrest Gump of the finance world. Mm -hmm. But uh, I mean, you know, I I went to Humboldt State University. I didn't, I didn't go to Wharton, right? Um, But But, but when, when you say that, I'm going to push back a little bit. People don't realize in this industry, if you're right three out of 10 times, it's like batting 300. Hey, you're, you're up for the all-star team. It's not, how often you're right, it's what you do when you're wrong. You could have be wrong frequently as long as you're controlling the downside. But when you're right and they're towering home runs and you're batting 300 to carry out the uh, baseball analogy, that's a great uh, on-base percentage. That's a great scoring percentage. Let me, let me take that and push it to the other extreme of the same story. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's long been proven that uh, investors are, on balance, more wrong than right. For sure. Uh so if you can be more right than wrong, you're doing really good. Mm-hmm. Uh, some investors are, not many. Uh, the more right you expect them to be, the fewer you get. If you can be right 70% of the time, you become a living legend For in sure. the long term. And so therefore, you better get darn used to being wrong at least 30% of the time. And if you can't take being wrong and figure out what to do when you're wrong, you, I mean, if, if, if you think you're going to be right all the darn time, you are the wrongest person in the whole world. And the reality is that so many people are so hung up on not being able to accept their wrongness. And, you know, I embrace my wrongness because fundamentally I know that if I was the greatest investor ever, which I know I'm not, I'd still be wrong a huge amount of the time. You know, I learned early in the career it's, a, it's okay to, to be wrong. It's not okay to stay wrong. And I think a lot of people have a hard time with accepting an error, fixing what has to be fixed, and moving on. Uh, if you don't do that with your your golf swing or your your tennis swing, uh, it affects your game. If you if that's you, why I don't play golf or tennis. <laughs> but if you make the same mistake in finance and in investing, it's hugely expensive, and that's that's the that's a huge huge difference. Let's um let's keep plowing through this. I, I want to talk about. Um, something you had said back in 06, uh, 80% of clients need an all-equity benchmark. Is that still true today? Uh, it's more true now than it was then. More true now than ever. So so how does that express itself in, in portfolios? Are you carrying very little in the way of fixed income or REITs or other non-equity positions? Let, let, let's just back up from that. Sure. The, the benchmark is about what it is, because that's the way you phrased it appropriately. The benchmark is about what it is you're trying to accomplish against. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like the track in which you're going to run around. Uh, are you running uh, long distance? You're running short distance, intermediate? What's the 
benchmark you're running. We can come back and talk about why that statement that you referenced is true, but then there's a reason to vary what's in the portfolio from the benchmark because you're hoping to do well compared to the benchmark. Mm -hmm. And so in a simple case of somebody who would be an all-equity benchmark, the time to vary from the benchmark is if you think you're going to have a big bad bear market and then you might vary from that. you got to have good reasons to do that because if you're wrong, you're going to get left in the dust. Mm -hmm. But you can vary from the benchmark all you want. I am and have been now for years. You know, I mean, I've been only seriously bearish three times ever in my career and I'm not bearish now and I'm thought of often as a permable. I'm not a permable. That, that's your reputation, no, but that's, I know that's, you've, I know, I've, I've, I know I've, you've. I've, 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 I've nailed three bear markets and I've missed bear markets too. Mm -hmm. And I missed the last one. Uh, I got- 08, 09. But you were pretty cautious heading into 2000. Oh, I nailed 2000. Mm -hmm. I nailed 2000 really, really well. Uh, I'm and and was 100% uh, not non-equity uh, in that period. What I, other bear markets did you catch just right? I got 87 pretty well. I mm -hmm. was 50% equity in 87, mm -hmm. and I was pretty good uh, about 70% equity in uh, to 60% equity in the 1990 small bear market. Mm -hmm. But uh, but you know you don't have to get all the bear markets because in the long term there's lots of bear markets. If you carve out a few bear markets and otherwise are equitized. Uh, you end up doing better than the market because fundamentally, if you can carve a few out and you stay equitized the rest of the time, since stocks you pretty well in the long term, it's not a bad function. But the reason to vary from the benchmark, whatever the benchmark is, is if you think the benchmark's going to do really badly. That doesn't make the benchmark inappropriate for the client. The fact is, the reason people need, you know, in this day and age, we've got a phrase that didn't used to exist called longevity risk. And longevity right. risk is about the fact that the guy, I mean, a long time ago, when people first did pension plans, you know, you, you retired at 65, you died at 70, and you got five years worth of your pension payouts. Right. And, and nowadays, you know, the 65-year-old is likely to live to be 95. And if you got a 30-year time horizon, and the primary person of your money is to take care of you the rest of your life, you still probably need a heck of a lot of equity exposure subject to other factors mm -hmm. because you got a long time horizon and equities. You know, as soon as you say long time horizon, that's where equities fit in. So you, you, you talk to a standard client and you say, so what's the primary purpose of your money? And then they tell you. And the most common answer you ever hear is, well, it's to take care of me and my spouse the rest of our lives. That's, and do you got anything else? Oh, I, mean, I want to leave some money to my kids. You got anything else? I, mean, I want to leave some money to charity. These are standard things. You hear mm -hmm. them all the time. That want to take care of me and my wife the rest of our lives. The next question is, so how long are you going to live? And it's not a matter of your age. It's a matter of things like, so how long did your parents live? And how long did your grandparents live? And what's your lifestyle in terms of health issues compared to theirs? Mm -hmm. And then you try to figure out how long they're likely to live. And then from that, you go to these subordinate features like leaving money to the kids or what have you, which actually extends your time horizon. It doesn't shorten it. Right. You're now, you're now thinking even longer term. And, and once you figure out that time horizon, if it's a very long time, and of course, you commonly run into this thing where, well, you know, I'm 65. Okay, great. So how old is your spouse because take care of you and your spouse well my spouse she's only 60 uh and how long are you gonna live oh well you know my parents died when they were 73 and you know blah 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 and i smoke a lot and i'm overweight you know and <laughs> and you know I, I try to drink a lot of poisons uh but my spouse she's 60 and her parents lived into their 90s and the grandparents lived into their late 80s and she's in great health He's going to probably live to be 95. So now you got a 35-year time horizon, and it's to take care of the both of you. It's the second to survive that counts, and it's longevity sure. risk for the second to survive. And what do they need? They need an equity benchmark. 
Fascinating. We've been speaking with Ken Fisher of Fisher Investments. Uh, If people want to find your writing, they could either go to Forbes or FI.com. There's a a, a slew of your writing available there. Is that correct? Absolutely. Plus Amazon or Barnes & Noble. You have- 11 books. 11. um, We should really get one more out, make it an even dozen. 11 books. You know, hopefully I'll live that long. 11 uh, books for New York Times bestsellers, 31 years of Forbes columns. Uh, There's actually a book about my first 25 years of Forbes columns. Called what? I don't remember. I I was reading it and I can't read. I don't it remember. On, uh, you know, but the fact of the matter is, I mean, I don't have very good memory. I'm, you know, I, I, I told you I'm basically kind of the Forrest Gump of finance, right? I, 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 it's a miracle that I'm even here. Uh, check out my daily column on BloombergView.com. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Masters in Business is brought to you by Exxon Mobil. Energy lives here. Welcome back. This is the podcast portion of our show, and uh, I've actually been really enjoying my conversation with Ken Fisher. There are so many questions I skipped for time purposes. We're going to come back to this, um, but let let's talk about. Let's start out with some of the books um, you just mentioned. The book Quiet. Let's talk about other books that you've read, either finance related or wholly unrelated, that you found to be helpful, insightful, worthwhile. What 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 are some of your favorite books? Um, Hunting with Bow and Arrow by Saxton T. Pope. Hunting uh, with Bow and Arrow. Interesting. What what was that about? Exactly uh, what it says or something? Well, Saxton Pope was kind of the father of modern, uh, not modern, of American bow hunting. And uh, when Ishii, the last Native American, uh, was brought into UC Med in San Francisco, uh, in, as I recall, 1911, uh, Saxton Pope became his doctor. Mm-hmm. And she taught Saxton Pope how to make a bow and how to hunt and all that. And then he went on to become this f- famous bow hunter and he wrote this book that includes all that. But if you think about hunting, and I'm not a hunter, mm-hmm. but if you, th- when I was a kid, I wanted to be a hunter, but I was just a kid when I was a kid, I you know, wanted to be a professional baseball player too. Mm-hmm. And that was ridiculous. But every kid in the 1950s wanted to be a professional sure. baseball player. The fact of the matter is, that hunting is a lot like investing. Let's expand on that. What, so why, why so? If, if you go back to things that I said in the prior segment about you, you want to fish in the right pond, mm-hmm. you got to figure out where the animals are going to be that you're going to hunt. Mm-hmm. you got to make sure you're going after the right kind at the right time. Uh, and then you got to have the tactics for how to do the final part, which is actually the last part of the hunt, which is what happens when you actually get close to it. Mm-hmm. And so it's really kind of a parallel. Uh, another one of my favorite books, again, that, that book was written in the 1920s. Another one of my favorite books, which was written in the 40s, was called Hunting the American Lion, which is a book about mountain lion hunting. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've never hunted a mountain lion. I'm not going to hunt a mountain lion. But, but it's a great book because it's about the long, arduous pursuit. Because hunting mountain lions, you know, which is always done with dogs and through terrible terrain because the cats want to lose you mm-hmm. and they're very smart and they're very i mean these, you know these are critters that can jump 20 feet straight up in the air mm-hmm. um pursuing requires endurance and investing is an endurance game another one of my all-time favorite books of course i love these parallels these are fascinating uh, uh, to uh, me uh, 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 and then you know there's investment books that i uh, love a lot um you know fred schwinn's where the customer shots uh-huh. uh, literally sitting on my night table oh, it's a great just, book it's I just started book. it, and it not and, too long and ago. And it's available now as a Wiley uh, classic. And before I forget, mm-hmm. uh, if anybody ever wants to go to our you know, website, uh, you know, it's do, do a Google search for Fisher Investments, uh, 
you know, on the website, there's uh, access to, and I don't remember exactly where you find it, but you find it on the first front page, access to resources. And on the, under the resources, there's uh, a list of uh, my all-time favorite books. And so, you know, I can't rattle them all off in the uh, three and a half hours we have ahead of us here. But, um, <laughs> but, but the fact of the matter is they're, they're all listed there. But, uh, you know, another one's How to Lie with Statistics by Daryl Huff. I another swear classic that's book. on my dining room table. It's, I, it's, no one would believe me. That is literally... Uh, it's a great book. I've been, I've been rereading it. I read it a long time ago. It's charming. And if you didn't know it was written 40 years ago, you would have thought it was written last week. And you can read it really, really quickly. Very quickly. Uh, and, and it's a delight. Uh, and then, uh, of course, uh, how to succeed, uh, uh, excuse me, uh, uh, Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. Uh-huh, sure. Uh, which is a classic book about learning, among other things, how to use this mastermind principle to guide yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's, of course, the classic investment books by the, the classic people that we all know. And, you know, you, you could rattle those off for me as well, but, you know, this would be Graham, this would be, I mean, I adored uh, uh oh, oh, oh not, let me point out another one that you, sure. can, you can find you can find used online mm-hmm. uh which is john templeton's book that's not about investing but about spirituality it's a great friggin book what's the what's the name of that the book? humble approach that's right i've the seen the humble that. approach by john templeton i adored john templeton i knew john templeton a mm-hmm. little bit and i just thought he was the coolest guy i mean this guy was calm and steady and gentle and thoughtful and everything that i'm not and he was i mean i you seem I, fairly kind and you've been do uh, i look calm look at me look at me barry do i look calm you're you're sitting you're sitting motionless your hands are folded in your lap i've got your voice is very steady but i have to do self control all right i don't think john templeton had to do self control i think he had it spiritually Hmm. That he was much more Zen than you. Is that what you're going to say? Uh, well, back then. Uh huh. That, back then, back then, that was back true. Then. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so that's in, that's really interesting. The the John Templeton book. I, I'm I visited, familiar I visited with it, him, but I've I, never read it. I visited him in the Bahamas uh, this one time, and he lived. He has a little office mm-hmm. over this. It was lime green colored over the police station, and. Uh, he's the most humble guy, and this is one, one of the most successful guys ever. And, and 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 he doesn't have the prolific quality of phrases that everyone knows that Warren Buffett has. Mm-hmm. But he had some great lines, you know, including the one that we used earlier in the segment the about the four most dangerous, dangerous words. words. Sure. Um, but the other, you know, another one that of his that I use over and over and over again is bull markets are born on pessimism, grow on skepticism, mature on optimism, and die of euphoria. And while that's not always true, it's true pretty often. I was going to say, it's pretty, uh, for a general statement, it's It's a pretty pretty good one. one, And it really sums up, there's a huge amount of contrarian thought. In fact, that goes back to, um, that goes back to what do I believe that's wrong? What do I know? Or what can I fathom that others can't? recognizing that bull markets are born on pessimism and die on euphoria, that's a huge, huge insight that I think a lot of people can glibly say, but you have to kind of live through it to really understand how true it is and be able to step back and and take a look at it. I can't tell you how often I've had people give me these aphorisms and, you know, I'm, I'm making the yapping gesture with my hand, but then when you watch their behavior, they're just completely oblivious being able to truly understand that, internalize it, is is harder, uh, easier said than done. So let me offer a clue for that. Okay. 
Behavioralism teaches us that we're prone to activity. And in fact, behavioralism in finance teaches us that the less decisions we make, the better we tend to do. Absolutely. And that the more decisions we tend to make, the more bad decisions we tend to make. And most people don't have that part that says, I'm making a decision now. The odds are I'm probably wrong. Let me slow myself down. The fact is most people want to do it, get it over, move, let me make the bet. And uh, the reality is that those kinds of features, like the gut instinct, Mm -hmm. they want to fly in the face of these simple concepts like born on pessimism, grow on skepticism, mature on optimism, die of euphoria. Before you go and make the decision, you want to stop and say to yourself, so are we in a euphoric world or not? And how would I measure that? And, And am I really sure I'm right about that? And let me think about that a little more before I go do something. And that's hard for most people to do because they just want to jump to the conclusion and then they want to be right. And again, most of the time, we're all wrong. I love the expression, don't just do something, sit there. It's an inversion of what what people typically expect. You can even lie down. (laughs) So let's go back to the three only three questions that count. The the problem is when I lie down, I always fall asleep. That that's that's a potential issue. This this is a nice uh, carpet to stretch out on. Um, On the three only three questions that count, we didn't get to the last question. We kind of did just now. Well, that's what made me think of coming back to it. What is my brain doing to mislead me? So so let's talk a little bit about the various things your brain does to mislead so you. So every part about us, and this is really hard for the human to accept, but every part about us is Stone Age. That is, our brains are still stuck evolution-wise in a world that we were set up to function in very well, and we did function in very well. I mean, if you, I mean, the human is created to dominate nature, and, and we pretty much completely have. And no other species lives in every square corner of the earth, completely dominates this environment, and has the ability to utterly change it to its liking. We are the only species on the planet that so, does that. So I'm going off in a different direction here, but. And, and your listeners wouldn't know this about me, but I have more scientific and technical background about things that relate to wilderness than most people in the world by a wide shot. We're going to get to and the redwood trees in a little bit. Not just redwood trees, t- tall conifers, wilderness. There is no more area anymore that hasn't been touched by the interplay of humans with biotics. That is, if you go into the most primitive wildernesses, there is evidence of things that have gone all around the world and are now in those. Nature is no more truly primitive. It's now been touched and affected in some ways, not not necessarily intentionally or actively, not necessarily, for example, with the chainsaw. It's just stuff that blows in the wind. Mm -hmm. It's just stuff that birds drop. It's just stuff that happens, but it's there. We're going to come back to that. Let's stick with the the human brain. Um, I'm fond of say saying something similar to what you just said, which is, you know, we use the human brain for off-label purposes. Most people don't realize um, there was an angina and uh, hypertension medication that had the side effect of causing significant erections in their users, and it turned out hey, this uh, hypertension drug, we have a different purpose for it, and it became Viagra. It was originally designed for something completely different. They call that off-label use. But the human brain is similar. So perhaps a less 
a less racy version is Benadryl is the allergy medication, and it's used in essentially the the key chemical in that is in used in all the sleep medications because allergy medicine makes people drowsy. Hey, here's an idea. Let's take the allergy medicine, put it in sleep over the counter sleep aids. So our brains are being used to make risk reward decisions in the capital markets when really their purpose, as you described it, is keeping us alive in a changing, challenging environment. Let me give you an ancient analogy and translate that into modern finance theory. Mm -hmm. So modern finance theory would say that markets are discounters of all known information and that what everybody's working about, talking about, uh, focusing on is very quickly priced into markets and then loses its subsequent pricing power. There's nothing novel about what I just said. If you think of where we come from, our Stone Age bodies are easy to understand. If we think of ourselves around an ancient campfire uh, at our campground with the rest of the people that we've known very well, and it's night and it's dark, and outside that campfire in the dark we hear a loud noise, what do we do? We turn and look toward the noise to make our ears hear it better, and we focus on it because we can't see so well in the dark. And our biggest risk at that moment in time is what's behind us, mm -hmm. not what's in front of us. And if truly we were being attacked by an enemy force, they'd want to make that noise and attack us from the rear or maybe attack us from the side but not attack us from the front, and they'd create that diversion. Now, in markets, what people want to do is figure out what everyone else is worrying about and then not worry about it because they're already doing it for you as a free service. Send them a little Christmas card and thank them for it. You've worried about this stuff for me all year long, and therefore I don't have to do it. Thank you all. Because it's already reflected It's already in price. priced. And mm -hmm. instead you worry about something else. That's a such a time saver, so consistent with finance theory, and so hostile to the way we normally think. Look at all of the noise and attention that you can see today in the media right now about everything about the French terrorist attack, which is a tragedy. No abhorrent, doubt about it. Abhorrent in all ways. But as soon as you see that attention, and of course we have a long history of terrorist attacks, we know they really don't move markets. And you see the market since then blanch it off. Why? Because everybody else is worrying about it. You don't have to. Worry about something more important. Worry about what they're not worrying about. And that's the part where you want to worry about it. That's your brain blindsiding you now. Because, mm -hmm. uh, listen, these big emotional events naturally draw people's attention, even though – you know, the, I'm again. I'm fond of saying what you think. It, what we worry about are rarely the things that do damage to us or our portfolios. I can't tell you how often I read people making forecasts about here comes a 1987 like crash. Well, you know, you get crashes or certainly bear markets on a regular basis, but that's not really what seems to hurt most people. What hurts most people are the excess trading, the high fees, the turnover. The mistakes we talked about, you mentioned earlier, that people make time and again, and they don't really seem to pay attention to. They're focused on the noise outside the campfire. Let, not... me, give, let me give you a different parallel to that. Please. There's uh, a, a famous set of studies that people don't seem to pay attention to put out by an organization. Uh, you probably know these, Barry. Uh, Dalbar. And sure. The, the Dalbar studies show that people actually do worse than the funds they invest in by a lot. And that in fact, in some of the studies, they show that people that invest in load funds do better than people that invest in no load funds, not because the funds do better, but because they feel imprisoned by their load fees and they mm -hmm. hold them so much longer, whereas the people in the no load funds trade them in, in and out at all the wrong times. And while the no load funds do better than the load funds, 
the flow of funds actually favors the people that don't flow the funds. They just sit. And that's that part about, don't, you know, stop doing something, just sit there. And, and that reality is the same thing. It's this part where people in and out do themselves in, and it's regardless of cause, reason, uh, this thing, that thing. But as soon as you see everybody else, where you, you can take so many examples. Uh, I, I spend a, a fair amount of time in front of large groups of our customers because we do large client-only seminars all around the country, uh, client-only seminars where they get to ask questions endlessly. The questions are almost, not always, but almost always, ex- almost exclusively about what's been in the news the last 45 days. Mm-hmm. And they're often the ones that are evergreen ones, like, but isn't the debt a big problem? And then you say, so how many people in the room haven't heard that we have a debt problem? <laughs> and you know, it, you, get, you, you know the reaction. And then, so therefore, you know it's priced. And therefore, you know, right. in terms of markets now, so let me just give you one more real quick. Please. Long-term problems way down the road. Markets don't care one darn about those because markets don't believe it. Markets don't discount things 15 years from now. They're not, they're not going to, you know, they worry about more or less, more or less the next three to 30 months. And, you know, the French terrorist attack, it's over, you know. But we have more terrorism coming. Climate, climate change down the road, that's not the next three to 30 months. The bankruptcy of Social Security, that's not the next three to 30 months. The Darn millennials that are no darn good. Well, you know, again, I don't know about climate change and I don't know about millennials and I don't know about the bankruptcy of Social Security. What I do know about all of them is they're not going to impact things in a hugely terrible way in the next three to 30 months and everybody else is worrying about them, so I don't have to. Because it's priced in and we're much more concerned with what's not priced in. Yep. All right, so let me come back to some of the questions um, that I missed. Uh, and and you mentioned these client events. How often are you speaking to to clients? Is that a well, regular? We 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 have people don't know this. That I mean, I got a lot of people who are pretty critical of my firm, but they don't know my firm. We do more client service offerings than any other asset management firm. And in you the have you have last I checked sixteen thousand something like that uh, clients. Yeah, or is it no thirty five thousand? Thirty five thousand. I'm looking at old data. So um, you have thirty five thousand clients, clients. sixty eight billion dollars. So you have to be doing these events. You're not taking phone calls. You're doing big events pretty regularly. Well, we have a whole variety of different types of events for clients, but one of them is where there'll be two to 400 people in a room mm-hmm. for a lunch or a dinner. There's a presentation and then a Q&A. Uh, we do uh, 70 of those around the country a year. 70, 70. But I don't do 70. I do about 20. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we've got other people in the firm, that senior people in the firm that do them as well. Uh, and I believe that interacting with the clients is important for every CEO in the world because if you forget who the customer is, right. you lose the business. I'm, I'm amazed at how many CEOs spend no time with customers. Hmm. And that, that's a serious mistake, in my opinion. Let, and Let's and, talk a little bit about that because I, I'm, I'm intrigued by the idea, not only of getting out in front of clients, but what competitors are, are doing wrong. You've said some interesting, interesting things about competition and staying uh and i'm looking for my specific question that i had on on competition you how closely do you pay attention to what your competition is doing some not much a little Uh, and who so who is your competition really uh you know it depends where you're talking about in the united states it's almost everything in the world because the united states has such a diverse and, Mm -hmm. and diffuse financial services uh, world of offerings. Uh, in Europe, it's just the banks. Uh, in the continent of Europe, in Britain, mm-hmm. it's in between. 
and because uh, um, truly, in so many things, you can say America's here, the continent's there, and Britain's kind of halfway in between. Right. But uh, in, in reality, uh, the the industry's very diffuse. Very little of it thinks like it's really a business. Mm-hmm. It thinks like it's a practice, and. Too much of the world wants to focus. I'm not suggesting that investing and investment returns shouldn't be very importantly treated. They sh- it and they should, but you want to do all of the business disciplines in a very excellent way because in the end, it's about returns. It's about service. It's about convenience. It's about all the same things that are in every other part of consumer services, and people forget that, and they forget that. I mean, I, I learned this as a kid when I was, uh, you know, before I ever got to this part of my life, when I would be analyzing companies. And one of the ones that I was very close to in its early days was Nucor, which is, you know, today's largest U.S. steelmaker. And Ken Iverson was determined that Nucor would be excellent at everything. Now, mm-hmm. I don't mean necessarily the best at everything. You can't be the best at everything, but excellent across the disciplines. And also, you know, all, I mean, all of the great firms in the world are excellent across the disciplines and in the realm of finance, people mostly kind of forget that. Hmm, And so you you want great service, you want great pricing, you want great investment stuff, which includes great research, but you you want great HR, you want great internal finance. Uh, You you can't, you know, an investment firm isn't gonna try to be the best, have have the best financial controller and treasurer in the world, but you better have a, you better really make a one. point to be across the board excellent because that ripples into the culture that you create in the firm. And when you ripple it into the culture that you create in the firm, it takes a life of its own that comes. And, and in, in my realm, nobody's really ever had market share until BlackRock came along. Mm-hmm. And still nobody has dominant market share. It's a very diverse industry. For sure. And in that diverse industry, it's a little bit like the analogy of the two guys with the bear in the woods. The guy's putting on his tennis shoes. It's like, I don't have to beat the bear, I just have to beat you. Right. And the fact is, you can be in parts of the investment world that are shrinking, and if you're gaining market share, you can still grow at a pretty good rate, and what you have to do is outrun the other guys. You're not worrying about the bear. And the this is the part where they forget that it's, at one part of it is you're up against the market, and another part of it is you're up against the fact that you're, somehow, some way, supposed to be helping a client. And if you can't actually effectuate the helping of the client beyond the returns, the client's going to fire you before they get the returns. It's a little bit like trying to get them to take unpleasant, bad-tasting medicine. Mm -hmm. they got to take the medicine the full course or the thing's going to come back and get them worse than ever. And if they stop because it's unpleasant, which is the natural human tendency, they hurt themselves. I I think people are going to be rewinding that five-minute segment right there and listening to it over and over again because there's a lot of uh, really, really juicy stuff in that. Before I get to some of my favorite questions, I have to ask what is really an insane question. You're deeply committed to advancing the world's understanding of redwood forest ecology and are known, and this comes right out of your bio, I'm not making this up, as one of the world's foremost experts on 19th century logging. I know you're from the Pacific or now in the Pacific Northwest. How did you ever develop an expertise in in that area of interest? That's quite unusual 
and fascinating to me. You know, again, I'm kind of a Forrest Gump kind of person. Okay. Um, so when I was a kid, uh, I could walk out my parents' house, hitchhike for 20 minutes in a world where hitchhiking was common and safe, mm-hmm. and be in uh, second-growth redwoods that had been cut over in the 19th century, and I would see all this stuff, and I wouldn't have a clue what it was, but it fascinated me. You know, remnants of shacks and old pieces of equipment, and mm-hmm. you know, and it hadn't all been hauled away, and I was just, I thought it was cool. And so at, I, I loved the forest, and I decided that I wanted to go into forestry, so I went to forestry school, and that's why I went to Humboldt State University. because For forestry school? Yeah, because it was okay forestry school, and in the days that I was young, it was the 1960s, and the world was in turmoil, and I didn't think I was, I went to school young, and I didn't think I was old enough and mature enough to handle UC Berkeley, which was a better forestry school, mm-hmm. um, but I was pretty sure I couldn't handle UC Berkeley. I wasn't mature enough, so I went to Humboldt, and it was a nice, quiet place, and it was a good school, and the teachers treated me while I was, you know, Pretty, pretty good student in a world of not very good students, so they paid more attention to me. And I liked forestry, and I liked, but but I decided to be a lousy career. I took a f- summer job for the Forest Service and said, I'm never going to work for the government again under any circumstances, no matter whatever, which also precluded me from ever thinking about a potential world in politics. Mm-hmm. All of that then led to me having a career in the, the realm of endeavor in which I engage, but keeping everything about trees and forests as my lifelong other interest. And so I came back and then I started building up the interest, living in that same region where those mills were. That's where I moved to, uh, 20 minutes from where I was raised. Where, where were you raised? San Mateo, California. And I started my firm in Woodside, California, mm-hmm. in the Redwoods. And so then I Woodside start- is where relative to San Francisco? North of it's it? It's just or? northwest of Stanford University. Okay, so Muir Woods, not that far uh, away. So that's further north. Further yeah. north, yeah. A little, little bit further north on the other side of the bay. But mm-hmm. but Humboldt, of course, is in the Redwoods, mm-hmm. right? Humboldt State University, where I went to school, is in the Redwoods. Uh, and so I, I, I was, you know, I'm kind of a Redwood addict. And uh, But then I started collecting catalogs to figure out what these things were in the woods. And then I get old books and, you know, I started building. I got 3,000 volumes of 19th century forest history. I believe it's the largest private collection of forest history stuff in the world. Uh, and then I'd write on the topic and, you know, I can, I, I dug up 35 mill sites and cataloged the artifacts and, you know, gave stuff to, uh, museums, built my own museum and, uh, which is now dismantled. And, uh, you know, I've always loved that, but then, but then I got into going back and tree science got to a point where suddenly it could be pushed. And it was partly because of technology and partly because of one person. And so I started pushing tree science. Uh, through this one guy financing it because I had the money and he had the ideas. And uh, we've pushed tree science quite a lot. Of week. And, and he and others, we keep pushing tree science. I've got uh, a major project going on in conjunction with the University of Washington now on uh, Pacific Northwest non-redwood conifer. And we're learning things about trees that nobody ever knew before. So you endowed a chair at the Humboldt State University the Kenneth L. Fisher Chair in Redwood Forest Ecology. Yeah. It is the only known chair in the world focused on a single species of tree. Quite yeah, fascinating. Because Redwood's the coolest tree in the world. It, they're, they're it's the weirdest amazing. tree in the world. They're, they're, they're very so interesting. Ma- they do so many things that no other tree does. Or let for me instance, say that. Give me a for instance. Well, let, you know, what I said was wrong. Lots of trees will do one of the things that redwoods do. There's no other tree that does all of the things that redwoods do. A, you know, it's the tallest tree species in the mm-hmm. world. B, you cut them down, they don't die, right? They root sprout, they what's called compass growth. There's a lot of hardwoods that'll do that, mm-hmm. but not uh, the conifers. Uh, they, uh, you take a, take a second growth redwood that's, you know, f- 
40, 50 years old, take a 30-foot section out of the middle of it, plop it in good soil, and it'll root sprout. Mm-hmm. It'll grow trees Unusual. off of that. Uh, there's Again, it's got all these. You uh, put, a, put a fire mm-hmm. in more mature trees. It will not hurt the tree because the bark doesn't have anything in it that's flammable. Hmm. The bark has no what you otherwise think of as pitch in it. Mm-hmm. The function of pitch is that why there's no there's less insect damage and and that yeah sort of- it, it it naturally produces a complex carbohydrate this tannic acid uh, and the tannic acid is bitter to a bug and so the bugs don't want it but it's also it 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 plays the function that pitch plays in a pitchy uh, mm-hmm. uh, like a sticky pine tree, tree yeah or- and and in that function uh, the fire then stimulates its desire to cone and it increases its conage rate the next year hugely because it knows that the subordinate trees get burned out in the fire and it doesn't. More it's a space, weird, more really, it's, really fascinating it's stuff. A, it's a weird, it's a weird critter. It almost, it seems like it thinks, it doesn't think of course, but it almost seems like it thinks and it does so many of these things that no other tree species does. Uh, l- l- let me just say that we recently completed uh, studies on its uh, relationship to climate change. Mm-hmm. It loves brutal climate because just like with the fire, it knows the brutal climate hurts lesser species and lets it then become aggressive. And, and it's really a very well-evolved tree. It's, oh, it's, no, it's, it's an amazing tree. Yeah, that. and what I find fascinating, when you're in a place like Muir Woods or any of the other redwood places, photos simply do not do it justice. They the are the just, only photos that I've ever seen that begin to do it justice are the photos that our people take from the tops of the trees looking down. Looking down. Mm-hmm. Because it's a, it's, a, it's a visual that's impossible for a human to get otherwise. It, it, it's, it's astonishing. And I every time I'm there, I just you walk out of those sort of woods and mind blown. It's, it's, and you look at on the phone or you look on the camera, but, but, but uh, if photos you go, are, are just don't work. If you go to the National Geographic uh channel and mm-hmm. you see the stuff from Steve Sillett on climbing the redwoods. Mm-hmm. So Steve's got the Kenneth O. Fisher uh, uh, chair in Redwood mm-hmm. Forest Ecology and uh, at Humboldt. And that stuff, get, you, you know, anybody on the, can, you, you wait long enough and it'll, that stuff will roll around and you can uh, you get a pretty good visual of redwoods in somebody's TV. All right. That sounds fascinating. Let, let's go to some of my favorite questions in the last uh, 15, 20 minutes that we have. Um, your dad, obviously, a significant influence, mentor, whatever word we want to use. Who else were, were mentors to you uh, in your career? In my career? Uh, I didn't really have a lot of career mentors, per se. Uh, there's a guy named Tony Spear, who's now deceased, who uh, was the head of investments at a operation called the Bank of California that doesn't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was a student of my father's uh, at Stanford. And then uh, he was a pretty good mentor to me for a long time, a very n- nice guy, uh, also a little bit of an unusual guy. Uh, but I-, I didn't have a lot of professional mentors. I have a lot of people that impacted me in life, but not so many professional mentors. G- give us an example. Um. You know, when I was, uh, I mean, my my grandfather was very important to me when I was a child. Uh, My grandfather actually uh, was friends with Saxon Pope, Um, going back to our prior discussion. And your grandfather was not Irving Fisher. No, 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 no. A number of people have said, oh, you're speaking to Ken Fisher? No, 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 dad is this, that was not his grandfather. My grandfather was a doctor, and he was actually an amazing doctor at uh a private practice in UC Med in San Francisco. Again, 
I'm a fourth generation San Franciscan who moved away from San Francisco. Uh, and uh, so he, going back to our prior discussion in the earlier segment, he knew Saxon Pope because they were at UC Med together. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that's part of how I got interested in that. My grandfather had a big impact on me. Uh, he, he was a marvelous man in his own way. So I had, after he died, I had a kind of a substitute grandfather uh, who was a tree guy, mm-hmm. and he had a big impact on me. And uh, I've been impacted by it. I mean, I've had these serendipitous moments with people. Like I, I spent a bunch of time with Richard Nixon and just a serendipitous thing. And he just taught me so much and not, not very long. And he, he was such a marvelous guy that almost no one wants to believe was marvelous because by that point in time, he's older and he doesn't really care about politics anymore. Mm-hmm. And he's got all the rough edges uh, worn off of him. And uh, This was in California? Yeah. And, uh, and you know... Again, I've been blessed to be able to meet people. So, you know, I didn't know John Templeton well, but I met John Templeton a number of times. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he had such a huge impact on me. Um, and so then I read everything, you know, that I could get my hands on that was John Templeton. And, but I didn't actually have the active mentor function because I'm pretty much of an extreme introvert and I'm not much of a people guy. And so, you know, that mentor thing didn't work really well for me. So let me ask a different question, a related question. What investors influenced your approach to invest in? You know, Templeton. Templeton, of course. Um, mm-hmm. um, my father, of course. Graham, of course. Buffett, of course. Uh, Dean LeBaron. Uh, uh, Dreamin. Uh, you know, I, I, you know, Dreamin wrote for Forbes uh, and still occasionally gets a column in. Uh, and Dreamin wrote for a long time. Huge value guy. Uh, huge low PE guy in particular. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, you know, LeBaron was really kind of the original quant guy. Yes. And I'm not a quant guy per se, but I appreciate the power of quantification and mathematics. And uh, I mean, there's a, there's a place for numbers and there's a place for non-numbers. And um, that's pretty much it. That, I mean, that's that's a good list, to, to say the least. And we went over your books um, let's talk about the industry itself. What's changed that you think is significant for the better or worse since you joined the finance industry? Complexity's changed a lot. Meaning it's gotten more complex? Yeah, much or, more complex. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, when, when I was a kid, you come an investment advisor and it was extreme generalist. And mm-hmm. again, that's a world, as I said in an earlier segment, where, you know, we we are now creating more MBAs per year than all the MBAs that have been created cumulatively up to that point in time. Technology has become a level playing field for people. So once upon a time, big firms had mainframe computers and little firms had pens and pencils. Mm-hmm. Today, everybody's got technology and, and it's leveled a lot of playing field for good and for bad. Uh, I mean, a lot of these things are dual-edged swords. Uh, so many more securities. If you go back to the original Forbes Mutual Fund survey, once upon a time, mm-hmm. uh, it was thought of as a leading edge thing then, and it had a few hundred mutual funds. Cause, a few hundred. Because wow. that's all you needed in those wow. days. I mean, that, when you say needed, that's what there was. You covered pretty much the whole universe, and that right. was a leading edge thing then. Uh, if you look at the complexity of things like uh, – I mean, Nathan Most creates the first ETF, the Spider, mm-hmm. and you know if, if I remember right, that's the early 1990s. Then you know, then you get the triple Q, and then now we've got ETFs that'll you know hundreds, you almost know, thousands, exactly. And so the complexities increased. The other part that's changed hugely has been journalism, mm-hmm. and you know, journalism when I was young was a few TV channels, 
a few important magazines, uh, a morning and evening newspaper at your home, and the Wall Street Journal. Mm -hmm. And that's what it was. Uh, You know, there were specialty rags for industries that came out once a month. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that that was what it was. Today, everything's moving overnight, lightning speed. Uh, Journalists' heads turn very fast. The turnover in the industry is much faster. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's so much noise. I think that's a dual-edged sword. It works for good and for bad. For good, you can use it because you can see what people are focused on and focus on something right. else. For bad, it's easy, easy to be overtaken by the noise. Distracted. And so, you, you know, you, you, you take both of these features and it's just a matter of learning to how to cope with it successfully. And if you can do that right, it actually is to your advantage. Things that I mentioned earlier, like quantifying sentiment, mm-hmm. can be done today in ways that once upon a time they couldn't be done because the technology allows you to. I remember when I was young and, and was first working on the price-sales ratio. I Which, paid, by the way, Jim O'Shaughnessy gives you credit for essentially creating that ratio no one else had uh, had done that previously. Uh, you will find no literature on the price-sales ratio until I started writing on the price-sales ratio. You will find none. Uh, that is, Graham made a reference uh, in The Intelligent Investor to the fact that it might be interesting. And other than that, and nobody else really delved into that. There's nobody that ever worked on it until I started writing about it. And I, I, you know, I I think it's a it's a one useful tool. It's not you know some kind of be all and end all. I don't believe in be all be all and end alls. But be that as it may, um, and and now I lost my train of thought as to how I got into the price sales ratio. But it doesn't matter. It's fascinating that uh, you know until I started researching background on you for this conversation, I had no idea that that was a Ken Fisher oh, oh, creation. Oh, yeah. Now I remember why I was, because in, in, the, in the 70s when I was working on that, I paid Goldman Sachs $25,000 to do a one-time screen of the New York Stock Exchange for me because they had mainframe computer. Uh, of low and that was pri- back when 25 grand was real money. Uh, low price sales ratio stocks. And uh-huh. in that point in time, low price sales ratio by itself because you couldn't get it was something that provided value added by itself because you could look through that, find companies that had very low price sales ratios, which you knew fundamentally should have their earnings come back and they were just flat on their face. And you could figure out that the market was too afraid of this stock. And huh. and that was a useful tool. And today- So you, know, you think it's less useful? It's got value, but not as much? Not as much as it had in those days because what you're trying to get is information other people don't have. But my point is the world was more primitive then. And so what's gotten what's happened is we got more complexity, we got more tools, we got more noise. Uh, and then of course, the other thing that we have with that, we have more we have more global custodial reach than we ever had before. And so we have more globalness. And if you go back to that older huge, world- Templeton's the only guy that was doing any kind of globalness in those days, right. and he's going way out of his way because it's hard to do today. It's easy to be global. Right. And our last question, they're telling me we have to wrap. Uh, I, you apparently have uh, other places to go and be. Is What do you know today about investing that you wish you knew 40 years ago when you began? I wish I understood then that we were going to go through a process some of the pieces of which we've been talking about, Mm -hmm. that takes the Warren Buffett line that in the long term the market's a weighing machine and in the short term it's a voting machine Mm -hmm. and stalls off the weighing and makes the voting process longer. Hmm. Sentiment has become, in my opinion, more important and more enduring, not permanently enduring, 
Weighing still is the ultimate outcome, finally, but it takes longer to get there because I believe views of our society can be maintained longer, longer. Longer, longer. Before they get to the point where they get overturned by the weighing. I mean, the weighing is about fundamental valuation relative Mm -hmm. to real quality and real growth. And the voting is about sentiment and here's what we think is true. And we now can think things that are just total nonsense for a long, long, long time and fail to actually see them. And I wish that, and I think that comes from technology, which ripples over into all parts of our lives. Between, and I wish I'd seen that impact. Between Twitter and the blogosphere and everything else, it would have made an me echo better. chamber. It would have made me better at seeing markets than I've been if I could have figured that. I wish I knew that. You, you, you asked the question, what one big thing would I wish I would have known earlier? Mm-hmm. That's it. Ken, this has been absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time. We'll have to have you back and do another three-hour stint. I'd love to. Okay. Your we'll, next trip to New York, Put sign me up. We'll do it. Uh, so if people want to find any of his uh, uh, Ken Fisher's writings, you can go to fisherinvestments.com, Forbes, on the Fisher site. I'll put up a link to all his favorite books. Um, if you just Google me, you, they'll, find, be able, they'll find more nonsense than they ever wanted. Okay. Uh, be sure and check out all our other interviews. Just look up an inch or down an inch on uh, Apple iTunes, and you'll see our other 70 or so interviews. Uh, I want to thank Mike Batnick. He is my head of research. And Charlie Vollmer, who is both my producer and engineer. Uh, I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Masters in Business is brought to you by ExxonMobil. Energy lives here.